Welcome to Straight Talk Live. This is a nonprofit webcast and podcast that explores human transformation, digital, and social transformation. And we have quite an exciting show today. We're going to be exploring the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to the tech titans of today. And I am Rick Snyder, one of your hosts for this show. I'm the author of Decisive Intuition, the CEO of Invisible Edge, and the head of culture for Refound. And really excited about today's show. Um, can't be more pumped up than having our special guest, Matteo, which we'll introduce in a moment. But first, we have our co-host, Af Maholtra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. Once again, extremely excited about today's show. I'm Af Malhotra, the co-creator of StraightTalk.Live and, of course, the co-founder of Growth Enabler. And, um, you know, Matteo um, is, is a dear friend and kindly accepted the, um, was it a challenge, I guess, of some sort? And he said, yep, bring me on. And I'm very passionate about what's going on in regards to the tech titans and let's talk about it. So we're going to move into that zone very quickly before we do. I just wanted to announce and um, make you aware of a few incredible changes in our business. As you're probably aware, we've launched a whole new website, straighttalk.live. We have our podcast channels. We have an amazing presence on Facebook and, of course, on YouTube, where a lot of this um, live content is being broadcast, in fact, right now. And I wanted to call out, um, you know, when you when you have a mission and a purpose and it all comes together, one has to really step back for a moment and be thankful. And both Rick and I wanted to thank our incredible virtual team of experts and champions. Uh, Denise, who you will see on these calls, you see her every week. She, you know, religiously comes here and supports us come rain or shine. And so thank you, Denise. Uh, doing a wonderful job supporting us and, and bringing a lot of this valuable content to you through replays and podcasts and so on. Uh, Cam uh, Carey, he's based in London, fantastic designer. He's he's the guy behind all of these cool images and a lot of the website work. So thank you, Cam. Daniel Johnson's just come on board. He's an absolute genius, social media and SEO guy. Uh, he's going to transform our brand and really open up you know, straighttalk.live to the rest of the world. I wanted to also um, introduce Sapna Dave, who's coming on board as uh, Alliances and Partnerships um, advisor. She spent many years at Bloomberg TV, so really delighted to have her on board. And um, of course, my, my co-host, Rick. So thank you, everyone. And thank you for all of those fans you know, audiences who support us all over the world. We keep getting fantastic emails from many, many of you. It's so encouraging and we, we are deeply grateful. So with that, uh, let's get into the dark side of the tech titans. Rick, over to you to do the honors and I am super excited. Do, 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 do. People know that song, right? And so one of the things that's happened since COVID, and it's been very clear for all of us, is how we rely on technology, how we rely on convenience, how we rely on same day, next day, two day service for our livelihood, it seems like. Uh, when stores get closed and things uh, don't happen the way we expect, uh, we rely on these uh, massive companies that are providing all this support for us. 
and a sense of where we go to buy things, where we go to interface with each other, where we go to get up-to-date information about our community if there's an emergency, uh, if there's a riot, uh, if there's a fire. And so how much are all of our lives are impacted every day by the tech titans, as we say. And yet there's also a dark side. There's a way where we can over-rely. We can give away our private data and information and not fully know what we're doing. Um, not being as informed consumers like we should be. So that's why I'm so thrilled to get into this topic today with one of the leading experts um, in this field around uh, studying the tech titans, learning how they move money, <laughs> how they store things <laughs> in interesting places, and, and just really the underbelly of really looking at what are we getting ourselves into? How do we participate with these companies so that we can have more choice and awareness? And so without further ado, I want to introduce Mateo Urquillo. Mateo, welcome to Straight Talk Live. Hello, Rick. F. Thanks very much for having me. Mateo, for those, of, for those who might not know your background, can you share just a little bit about your bio and your background and where you come from? Yeah, sure. So um, first, first thing I would say is um, thanks very much for the generous uh, introduction, Rick. Um, I would have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm probably not uh, a leading expert in these, in these uh, spaces, but uh, certainly interested in it. It does overlap with things that uh, I, am, I am very interested in. Um, so my background, um, I, I've worked in consulting um, in, in, a, in a couple different countries, in Germany and Romania. Um, I've worked uh, in the UK primarily in financial services. Um, I'm also an academic researcher, so I'm uh, doing a PhD at the University of Edinburgh, and I focus on uh, political economy. I look at state power. Um, and how uh, organizations operate in the world and what, what's the interplay between state power and corporate power. So that's, that's my background and that's, that's my uh, entry point into these, into these topics. Um, I think the tech titans in particular is something that uh, AF and I have a particular um, affinity uh, to discussing because there's so much here, there's so much richness in this space. Uh, and when we had a discussion about having this conversation, um, the idea of, of framing it as the good, the bad, and the ugly was really helpful because nobody wants to hear anybody rant for an hour about uh, the dark side and, and how bad the tech titans are, an evil empire. There's, there's multiple lenses to this. So um, like, like you've both said, really keen to dive right into the, into the content. So let's go right there, Mateo. Um, let's start with how do you define the tech titans? What are they? And then the second part is, how would you compare this era to the famous era of the Rockefellers and the Stanley Morgans and the conglomerates of you know, the 1920s and what have you, where there was such a centralization of power even back then? How would you uh, color this era to that era? But first, what are the tech titans? How would you define that? So it's a, it's a really interesting question, right? When we talk about tech titans, it's the, the organizations that have really uh, risen right to the top. And there, there, there are multiple different definitions. We're talking about the tech titans. Generally, we're talking about the big four. So Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. Um, you can add to that Tencent and Alibaba, um, but really we're talking about the four. Um, there's a guy called uh, Scott Galloway, who's professor of uh, marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. And he's written a book called The Four, and he gives uh, a bit of a taxonomy for how to think about the, the tech titans. Um, there, there are eight kind of key features that a tech titan has to have to be you know, considered um, uh, in, in that ballgame. 
Um, so he talks about product differentiation. Uh, you've got to have something unique, uh, different from everybody else. You've got to have visionary capital, which is access to cheap capital, really. Mm -hmm. Global reach, which means you have to operate truly as a, as a global organization. Operating in one country or one geography really isn't enough. Um, he talks about likability. Um, there's, there's a quite funny anecdote in the book where he, he says, you know, being likable goes a long way when you talk about regulation, interaction with consumers. And he says, you think about Steve Ballmer and, and uh, Bill Gates, and they're not cute and cuddly. Uh, he says that the room gets brighter when those guys leave. So <laughs> likability uh, goes a long way. And it's easy to think about Google with a really simplistic interface, um, Amazon, the little uh, lowercase a, and it's bringing you all your goods, Apple, this luxury brand um, that, that produces these amazing uh, devices and so on. Um, vertical integration is the next one. So this is about owning the value chain from the point of purchase onward, really understanding ownership of your, your entire distribution. So when you think about why are companies like Airbnb or Uber not on this list, it's because they don't own the, the, the underlying assets that they're effectively selling, right? They don't own the cars, the mm. fleets, the houses, and so on. AI, um, access to and facility with data is a key marker of what it means to be a tech titan. If you can't do that, then you're not operating in the, in the top tier space. Mm. You have to be an accelerant, which means you have to be able to attract top talent. And related to that is his final one, which is geography. So you've got to be close, he says, to world-class uh, educational institutes. And when we think about the geography of where the tech titans are, you, you've obviously got Amazon and Seattle, but the other three are really in that San Francisco, San Jose corridor. So you've got Mountain View, Menlo Park, and Cupertino, all within throwing distance of Stanford University. So these are the, these are the features that uh, are, are, are leveraged in concert to produce these unbelievably powerful organizations we call tech titans. Um, when we think about Alibaba, for example, if we compare Alibaba, which has been called China's Amazon, um, the reason they're not on the list is because even thinking about something as basic as revenues, um, Amazon has about 10 times the revenue of Alibaba. So there's a long way to go, right? There's similar structure, um, similar integrated infrastructure that they're building, uh, but, but in terms of scale and scope, there's just really no comparison. So that's how we think about the, the tech titans. Mm. And how do you compare this era to what we know from back in the day when they wanted to break up all the monopolies of, you know, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the big oil, and, and all the political dispute that came at that time. And then you, you're starting to see echoes of that today. How mm. do you compare and see those eras? Yeah, so that's, that's exactly right. Um, so I think when we get on in the conversation a little bit later, we can come to some more specific examples, but it's certainly the case that the captains of industry or the robber barons, uh, as, as some people would call them, um, you know, there, there's a lot of similarities. So there's, there's a bit of a running analogy that we can do through these concepts of good, the bad, and the ugly when we talk about um, uh, these characters. Uh, and they're, they're interesting, right? Because when we think about the tech titans of the, the late 19th century, the Industrial Revolution in America, um, Vanderbilt built the rail network. Uh, Rockefeller uh, started uh, and then totally monopolized uh, oil, starting with kerosene. Um, you have J.P. Morgan in, in finance and banking, and you have Carnegie with steel, 
creating a, a brand new product with which to literally build uh, the country. Most of the, the skyscrapers that started in Chicago and elsewhere built of steel. Um, it's a new material that allows that to happen. And so we talk about building the infrastructure of America, it's literal. And, and so there, there's, there are analogies um, that you can, you can apply to think about the tech titans today. There are also some limitations and some interesting nuances. So let's, let's, um, let's dive in and we can, we can talk a bit about um, where, where those analogies work and where they're limited. So Matteo, you talked, thank you for that. That's, that was a fantastic um, summary and definition. Uh, before we started the call, we, you know, we were, we're trying to do our best to ensure that we, we paint a fair picture of, of the tech titans and these giants. Um, they, they're doing some amazing work for society, for business. They're democratizing trade. They've made e-commerce more accessible for many of us. A lot of people actually, um, uh, you know, have generated an, an income on the back of Amazon Marketplace, for example, and have transformed the way they work. A lot of people have left um, the corporate and, you know, become gig workers using powerful platforms, uh, including Google. Um, and there is a lot of goodness in the tech titans before we jump into the dark side and we start exposing um, some of the interesting facts and figures and empirical evidence that, that you'll share with us. Tell us a little bit about the good work that you think these organizations are doing. Um, it could be easier for us to process that and our audience because we use the products and the apps and the tools and the devices uh, on a daily basis and we feel overjoyed and content and addicted even, um, may I say, to a lot of these products. What is your take on what's good about the tech titans before we jump into the bad or the ugly? Uh, being our format moving forward. Sure. So there, there's a lot to say here. Uh, there's, there's a tremendous amount of uh, good and technological advancement that's come from the tech titans. Uh, Google's mission statement is to organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible and useful. So no small task. And when you think about what Google's done, they, they, they've had a fair stab at that. Um, you, you, you go to Google for virtually everything when you're searching for something. And it's not just about uh, access to information, it's about how the information is made available. So Google has made available the repository of, of the world's collective information. And this is really from the past, the present, and the future, I would argue. So the past, uh, the Google Books project, scanning uh, books that are no longer in copyright, so they're accessible to anybody in, in virtual, for, in, in digital formats. Um, present information, Google can get you uh, in the first couple of pages. Uh, if anybody ever clicks through to the second page, I should, I should note. But on the first page, generally speaking, you get a pretty clear answer to whatever question you might be asking. When we think about future knowledge, future information, um, you know, think about weather forecasting, economic forecasting, uh, forecasting for events, uh, schedules, transportation, Google flights, uh, Google uh, public transport. When you think about institutional schedules, and all of this is updated in real time. So the, the, the access to information has never been greater. And I think it would be difficult for anybody to argue that that has not been fundamentally and primarily driven by Google and its different applications. We think about Facebook. Facebook keeps us more directly connected to people than at any point in history. Um, there's there's uh, a lot of numbers floating around about uh, how many people are connected to Facebook, but think about average monthly users 
accessing any Facebook product, right? Because there are lo loads of Facebook products. Um, and you get about 3.1 billion users on a monthly basis in 2020. Facebook itself has about 2.7 billion monthly viewers. And th these are staggering figures. These are, these are enormous chunks of the global population. Um, and that interconnectivity is something that we, we just, it's difficult to imagine uh, in, in the era before Facebook. Um, you look then at Amazon and the ability, as Rick was saying in the beginning, to purchase and have delivered the, 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 a wider range of goods uh, than at any point in history. This is really phenomenal. Um, it uses the, the broad infrastructure of society, but layers on top of it, this e-commerce retail framework that enables us to have whatever we want, whenever we want. And then finally, if we think about Apple, right? All of that stuff that we've just discussed, access to information, being more connected than any human beings in history, and the ability to purchase stuff and have it delivered to you, you can do all of that from this beautiful luxury device in the form of an iPhone or an iPad that fits into your pocket and that makes you feel good about yourself. So there's a huge amount of good when we think about the ability to interact with each other, interact with the world. Um, those, are, those are some of the, the good things when we think about the direct good. Um, there's also stuff that a lot of people don't think about or see when you think about these organizations. So infrastructure, right, Rick, we were talking a minute ago about uh, the Vanderbilts and the Carnegies and the Rockefellers building infrastructure. And when we think about the infrastructure of the physical internet, right, this is done on fiber. This is done in tubes. There's a great book called Tubes that I would recommend anybody to read. If, you, if you're not um, tech savvy on the internet, it explains to you how the internet is a physical thing, right? It is not some thing that just floats in the, in the, in the ether. Despite the fact that it's called, you know, cloud, cloud is really the giant warehouses that are like a million square feet that consume ungodly amounts of electricity. So the physical infrastructure that enables these, these functions, these, these good things is, is tremendous. Physical internet, I think about cloud storage, where does all the stuff that you collect on your iPhone from photographs to messages to any, anything else you might have on your phone that gets stored in the cloud. Um, and then there's cloud computing. There's access to the computing power that these companies uh, make available uh, for purchase. Um, there's, there's the record of events. We think more broadly about, um, we have now the ability to think um, uh, in real time about what somebody said, and we can replay it. We can hold people accountable. So think about your Facebook histories or Donald Trump's tweets. You know, he says, I didn't say that. Well, no, you did. Here's the tweet. I can show it to you before you delete it. Um, and there are, you know, there, there are lots of other examples. Um, I think the, the modern infrastructure that the tech titans have produced, to me, it feels a bit equivalent to the, the invention of the printing press, right? So the Protestant revolution or reformation, depending on your, your, your historical uh, 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 worldview, um, whatever you want to call it, um, it gave people the, the opportunity to interpret the Bible for themselves for the first time. So you didn't have the hegemonic power of the Catholic Church telling you this is how you must interpret it. Here's the book, you've got it in front of you, you can interpret it for yourself. And there's a tremendous amount of freedom there. Um, you're, you, you know, governments are no longer really able to rewrite history in their own favor, uh, remove people from photographs, as Stalin is famous for doing. It's a check on totalitarian power. You think about the Arab Spring. Um, I think there's also huge benefit to access to all of your personal information from anywhere in the world at any given time. Um, and then there's ubiquity. 
So if you remember back to the, to, it feels like a lifetime ago, to um, the, the early 2000s, Starbucks had this model where they, they produced what they thought was the perfect coffee shop. And when they expanded globally, they didn't, they didn't, they resisted the temptation to amend their coffee shop model to whatever locality they happened to be in. They just stamped on the American model, this American coffee shop everywhere on the globe. So when you went to Starbucks, your latte tasted in London exactly the way it tastes in, in, uh, in New York City um, and in Los Angeles. Um, the tech titans have taken this model and made their, their infrastructure ubiquitous. So everywhere in the world, you have access to the same exact standards. So there, there is a huge amount of good, not only in the products that we use, but in the infrastructural components that, that, have, that, that are a direct consequence of, of the company's uh, rapid expansion. You make such a good, oh, yeah. Sorry, no, I just wanted to say one more, one more point was around employment because it's, it's a hot topic. Oh, yeah. um, we talked seven or eight weeks ago, we talked about the, the impending unemployment crisis. And just recently in the UK, and I'm sure this has been happening in the States, uh, the BBC released a big press, um, you know, series on the fact that we are actually in a recession and the unemployment rate's been the highest since, um, I don't know, a, a decade or something along those lines. We saw this coming, of course, and we were debating and discussing this. And why this is an important point is because the tech titans on the good side, outside of everything you've said, Matteo, which is salient, pertinent, important, and very relevant, is that they employ people and they put people in jobs. Uh, Amazon is close to hiring a million people, a million um, strong workforce. The other organizations are in the hundreds of thousands. If you compare that to banks even, or some of the largest companies on the planet that have, we've seen in the past, those numbers are immense. And the diversity of the workforce, not just the ethnic diversity or the gender diversity, which still needs work, of course, but I think skills-wise, they have such a diverse force because their business models are diverse. You know, it's no, it's no longer I sell a product and it's one single product. There's services, there's ad revenue, um, there's augmentation of existing business models, which requires different skills and different people. So I think when we think about unemployment, there is a sense of hope, bizarrely, that if you, ha if you haven't got a job or you're going to get fired from a job, if you upgrade your skills, you might be able to work for one of these companies in whatever capacity, right from the warehouse to the boardroom. And I think that's a very important um, point to call out that I think a lot of people feel is the good side of the tech titans. So um, I'm sure you feel the same. Sorry, Rick, I interrupted, but, but go ahead. Yeah, that's just a, I think it's a really great point you bring in, just how all these other new businesses are created on the backs of the behemoths. So when you have a Google, all the other, you know, digital marketers who have to stay up to date on the latest algorithms and build their whole businesses on that to help other businesses advertise their services and products as an example, it's amazing how many new industries are created. And as we all know, there's two sides to a coin, right? And so let's, let's take a look at some of the dark side of that, because as we're talking about more employment around the world, there's the other side where small business gets decimated and can't compete with some of these big behemoths, these tech titans, mm. um, or they get acquired or, or just uh, run out of town, if you will. So, Mateo, let's dive into that side of things. What do you see as some of the darker side of the tech titans, the ones that are obvious, but also the ones that we don't talk about so much? 
Yeah, so really good point. Um, and it's a, it's a perfect segue because um, I think that, that dichotomy is something that's really interesting. Hiring a million people um, is, is phenomenal. Uh, you're getting to the level of employment that, that rivals governments. Uh, the U.S. government has mm. a huge number of people. When you think about a million people, that, that really does start to, to rival um, statecraft. And that's, that's something we should be mindful of. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that one in, in, in a minute. Um, but I would say, you know, the, the things that we just talked about in terms of the good, uh, infrastructure, having a record of events, when we think about the printing press analogy, personal information and ubiquity, um, I, think, I think it's quite easy to conceptualize the other side of those coins directly. So Rick, as you said, when we think about infrastructure, yeah, we have, we have an incredible logistics infrastructure that Amazon is building. And make no mistake, Amazon is not just about um, e-commerce, not just about creating a platform to sell other people's wares. They are building a physical infrastructure from roadworks to shipping uh, lanes to um, airspace through drones, these types of things. Um, again, I referred to Scott Galloway, who, who actually is one of the leading uh, experts in this space, I would argue. Um, he, he says, for example, you know, one of the things that makes Amazon scary when it comes to infrastructure is that they have so much money, they have access to such cheap capital, and they're not interested in paying dividends that they can, they can throw money at these insane ideas just to see if they'll work. Maybe drones work, maybe they won't. Maybe we'll build a fleet of trucks. Maybe we'll build a fleet of ships and we'll be the, the liaison between Chinese trade and the States. So that infrastructure is really interesting. Um, again, Rick, going back to your example of the, the late 19th century industrial revolution, there needs to be further conversation about who owns the infrastructure and how does that work going forward? But yeah, um, there's, the, there's the death of the, of what, in America, it's the death of Main Street in the UK you'd say the death of the high street. Um, shopping malls in America are collapsing at a phenomenal rate. And who's buying that real estate? Amazon. And what are they doing? They're converting that space to warehouses, to retail locations. This is a thing that I think needs to be said more often, but you think about Amazon. Amazon currently has a brick and mortar presence that you never think about. How do you get next day delivery or same day delivery. That's because there's an enormous warehouse right outside of your, your town or city or village. Um, Amazon in the US alone has 190 million square feet of retail and warehousing space. Now, for those of you who, who don't work in millions of square feet, myself included, that's, <laughs> that's equivalent, right? That's equivalent to just about a third of Manhattan that they have in retail and warehouse space today. Wow. That's phenomenal. So this infrastructure um, is, is, is a big question mark. And I think reliance on a single company for all of your retail needs is scary. They're being Walmart at their own game, for example. Um, when, we, when we think about records of events, right? The dark side of that is you have a record of everything forever, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That's a scary thing. I think everybody's done a Google search where you see like, oh my God, how do I get that photo of myself off of, off of Google? Um, the, the other side of the printing press, right? And this one is a little bit more philosophical. Um, the dark side of the printing press when it was introduced, um, it, was, it was, you know, great freedom that started the, the Protestant Reformation. Um, but as, as the, the father of sociology, uh, Durkheim wrote in his famous tract, uh, Suicide, 
you did. You saw suicide rates skyrocket through Europe because now you no longer have the Catholic Church there to support and tell people how to lead your lives. So it used to, I, I don't remember the exact statistics, but it was something like, um, you know, one priest for every thousand inhabitants of Europe. And uh, post the Protestant Reformation, it went to one to 100,000, something like this. And so people felt for the first time the existential burden of having to interpret the world for yourself. And I think mm -hmm. we've all felt that when we go onto Google looking for some piece of information and you can find, you know, just endless opinions. It's difficult to know where to go, what to believe, et cetera. So I think that there's, there is really this, this question mark of, of the existential threat of having all information available to you. Um, and, you know, uh, having all personal information in an easily accessible format also has its downside. Um, in the worst cases, that can be used by totalitarian states to surveil, manipulate, control, um, and, and otherwise coerce populations. Um, you know, when, when you have corporations and states that know more about you than you, that's, 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 a, that's a questionable uh, uh, dynamic. And then finally, um, with ubiquity, the danger of uh, hegemonic presence of these big tech titans limits competition, right? It stifles creativity. Um, uh, Af, you, you gave a great talk uh, last year about the tech titans uh, where you were talking about the, the uh, vacuuming up, the hoovering up of IP. So the tech titans buying startups, uh, buying out individuals, buying IP and patents, not because necessarily they're absolutely going to use them, but they want to prevent other people from using them. They want to have that repository. They want to co-opt the best ideas for themselves. So I think for me, those are, those are the high level uh, bad things. And, and before, uh, before we move into some of the really gritty stuff relating to the state, um, I, yeah, I, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd push back to, to AF if you, if you wanted to add anything there. No, I, 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 was, I, I think we, we talked about it last year and I'm, I continue to study the tech titans and research them and so on. And I think uh, the antitrust uh, debacle right now, I think is an interesting thing. And if I take my pessimistic hat off and I wear my realist hat, I do think that the, whilst there are some bads, they, they will be fixed and addressed if regulation starts to get a little bit better. Unfortunately, regulators have been smoking pot or something for a long time. They're way out of, out of um, they're way behind on the, on the knowledge curve, simply because I don't think we, um, as, as business people who are not studying this area, have paid any attention to the business models and the ways um, in which these incredible businesses have actually just, you know, organically, inorganically got created and grown at such an alarming and unprecedented rate. So we haven't been paying attention and the regulators certainly haven't. And I think that sort of, um, it talks to why we feel that this is bad because they've dominated markets. Um, I do think that the startup economy is a very good thing because it's, it's provoked and it's prompted the tech titans to continue to innovate and be responsive and build new products and be disruptive in all senses, pricing, service, customer experience, and so on. I think the downside is that the power, the amount of cash, the market cap of these companies, you know, collectively the four that you mentioned, and if I throw in um, Netflix into it, so even if I throw in Alibaba and Tencent and so on, it's over $7 trillion. I mean, Apple alone has $200 billion on its balance sheet and cash. That's a serious amount of money. and. 
um, they have the eyeballs, they have the attention as the currency of tomorrow, they have the attention, they have the data, they have the addiction, they have everything. And so I do think that is worrying for all of us, no matter how useful and compelling their products may be. The Alexa product at home is is a game changer for me, for my little daughter. In fact, I teach her through the Alexa products because she learns nursery rhymes and um, I don't have to read the same book 500 times. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I turn on Alexa and she's listening to the Groffalo again and again. It's in every aspect of your life, these tools are magnificent, but I'm very dependent as many people are. And I, that, that worries me as a consumer and as a technologist and as an entrepreneur. And so, uh, yes, I, I'm absolutely enamored by and enchanted by the tech titans and hence I continue to study them. But I'm starting to get very worried about the fact that we have let them just go wild and a 1.6 plus trillion market cap for Amazon by the way I was looking at the stock numbers whoever's wealthy on this call is probably investing their money very wisely and if you do want to invest or if you had invested from April April a few months back to now um, Amazon share price has jumped 68% since April to now 68% Alphabet or Google 32% Apple check this out um, over 90%. Um, Microsoft has been delicate and timid, but 30% plus. These are these are some serious jumps in stock price. And if you are investing, then people, you know, look, let's look, let's be honest. If you are putting even a thousand dollars away or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever the your capacity is, you you're creating wealth and you're building wealth by investing in these companies as well. So that's that's all good stuff. But you know, the the next piece is going to be very interesting, Mateo, which is the ugly. Uh, the bad is kind of bad and we feel scared about it, but the ugly should really petrify you. And there's a moral and ethical issue coming up that I know you're going to raise, which um, after this COVID, once this COVID situation passes by, hopefully one day, we're going to reflect back and hopefully we will be more um, thoughtful, more focused on, you know, um, being good rather than gaining material um, you know, having having a focus on material success and so on. And we're going to start to think about ethics a lot more. And I, we've started to do that in our personal lives and through Straight, Straight Talk Live, its creation was on the basis of us realizing that good people need to come together to make a dent in society. So we do good things, not just build great companies that have high valuations. And so uh, I'll leave it at that, but I, I, want, to th I want to hit the ball back at you um, and spin it back at you and say, hey, um, Tell us all about what you think is ugly about these organizations, because that's that's the um, the meat and the bone, I think. Yeah, yeah. So just just to just to um, uh, respond to a couple of things you said there, Af. So cool. you know we shouldn't forget that in, in 2016, 2017, there was a lot of speculation about which company would be the first uh, with a market cap of a trillion, and it was it was almost exactly two years ago. It was August second, 2018 that Apple became the first company to hit a market cap of a trillion. Um, and today, uh, as, of, as of the last time I looked a couple of hours ago, uh, they're, they're hovering just under 2 trillion, 1.93 trillion. So yeah. th th these, are, these are companies that are aggressively growing. And you know, there are different ways to talk about which, which companies are the biggest in the world. Um, Fortune uh, 500 and the Fortune Global 500, for example, are ranked by revenue. But we're talking here about market cap. Um, if you look at revenue, uh, the top 10, five of them are oil companies, one energy company, two auto manufacturers, but you've also got Amazon and Walmart. When mm -hmm. you think about top 10 by profit, 
you get six banks, one oil company, but you also have Microsoft, Alphabet, and Apple. And when you look at the top 10 by market cap, it's all of the tech titans plus Berkshire Hathaway, Visa, and Johnson and & Johnson. And that's, that's, a, that's a tremendous difference from what we've seen. The other thing to think about is over the last 20 years, people forget that in 1999, Microsoft was ranked number one by market cap. And then it was ExxonMobil for the next several years. But ExxonMobil and General Electric went back and forth. But since 2012, market cap has been dominated by the tech titans. It's not even a contest. Um, and again, I, I happened to come across this quote by, again, Scott Galloway, who said uh, of these antitrust hearings that- You're, you're a fan of Scott Galloway, huh? You know, I am a fan of Scott Galloway. <laughs> he, he, he's, uh, he's probably one of the, the edgiest uh, uh, thinkers in this space, uh, but he, he had this quote. He said, you know, it's a great time to be uh, an unregulated monopoly in a pandemic. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely right. Um, I think we need more people like Scott Galloway who aren't afraid to step out and, and say these more controversial things. Um, when we get to the ugly app, to, to answer your question, um, I, I've conceived of this in kind of a couple different ways. So there's the government uh, question, the challenge to state, and then there's the stuff that we need to think about from a more philosophical, ethical perspective. Right. Um, so we talked about Google's mission statement, but Google's motto is don't be evil. And this is an interesting one, right? Because don't be evil is not the same thing as do good. Right. And, and so you can think about this like you think about zombies, right? Saying you are not dead means you're alive. But if I say you're undead, it means you're a zombie. Right. And, and when we think about these, these, these language plays, don't be evil. It doesn't mean be good. It's like one of my favorite British sayings, right? When you're, you're having a discussion with somebody and they say, I don't disagree. You're like, <laughs> okay, it doesn't mean you agree. Right. Exactly. So, don't be evil is, is this motto. And famously in 2013 at a committee hearing uh, that resulted from whistleblowers flagging issues on Google's tax practices, um, the, the, the heads of, of Google, uh, 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 Amazon, Facebook, and Apple were called in front of um, the UK parliament for a committee hearing. Um, and UK Labour MP Margaret Hodge um, famously told Google's Europe boss, a guy called Matt Britton, I think you do do evil. And the whole point here was about you guys are making more money um, in, in, and have broader scope uh, than, than most companies in, in history, and yet you're not paying taxes. Mm -hmm. So this question about tax evasion and tax avoidance, mm -hmm. some of these structures are just unbelievable. So how do you, how do you have a multi-trillion dollar company that doesn't pay tax? And um, you know these tax practices change every year. Um, they spend a fortune on lawyers and the big four to help construct these these aggressive avoidance practices and tax codes change every year. So um, mm. th they're constantly updating. But here's an example. Let's say you're Apple and you want to avoid paying taxes on uh, on your, your, your profits. So what you do is you say, well, the physical products that we develop, um, that we sell, we're selling the, the product, but only a tiny fraction of the sale price of your iPhone is the, is the physical object. Mostly everything else is IP, right? And so what do we do? We set up our IP uh, company in Luxembourg and we negotiate uh, a tax rate with the Luxembourg government to give us effectively a 0% tax rate. So now when we sell an iPhone, what you're paying for is primarily that IP, which is taxed at a really low rate. And then what you might do for the rest of it is you might say, well, 
in Ireland, uh, which we can also negotiate really low tax rates on. Ireland is a famous tax haven. We're mm. going gonna to funnel the rest of it through Ireland. So now you've got these super low tax rate uh, 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 countries that you're funneling your, your profits through. And consequently, you can say, well, you know, we're not really making profit because we have to pay this IP company that owns the Apple IP. So that's problematic. But then you ask the question, well, if you're not profitable, how are you paying your, your shareholders a dividend? Because, you know, mm -hmm. Apple's got really excellent value. Well, yeah, we still want to pay a dividend. And so we calculate what a dividend would be. And then we set up a finance company in the Cayman Islands and we, we take a loan from the IP company, which has loads of cash. And then Apple sitting in Cupertino, California, right? Because you see on your phone, it says mm -hmm. right there, designed in Cupertino, California. Cupertino takes a loan from this finance company that's been set up in the Caymans, and suddenly that's debt. So we're paying a dividend, but that's debt that we're going to have to pay back, which further reduces your profitability, right? Mm -hmm. The trick to not paying taxes is don't be profitable. So there are lots and lots of ways that you can reduce the profitability across an organization of, of that scope. But there are lots of problems with that, right? Um, some people will say, well, it's not illegal. We're just avoiding taxes, mm -hmm. and it's totally within the framework of the law. And I say, read H.L.A. Hart. H.L.A. Hart wrote a book about the concept of law. And he said, just because it's the law doesn't mean it's moral. Mm -hmm. Just because it's legally permissible doesn't mean it's morally permissible. And the example he gave is to say, if you make the claim that the law is the basis for your morality, then let's take the example of the Nuremberg trials. So you have all these guys who were obeying the law under Nazi Germany, and consequently, you would have to make the argument that they're being moral. But then you're trying them at Nuremberg for, for crimes against humanity, <clears throat> ultimately becomes the basis for the Geneva Convention. And then Germany uh, obviously transitions to modern, progressive, secular democracy that's massively capitalist. And those same folks are abiding by the new legal framework. So are they moral in one sense and not moral in another sense? If they're following the law, if the law is the basis of your morality. So I don't think that's right. I think we need to have a broader conversation about tax morality. Taxes are, are, are something that uh, a lot of people um, don't like to pay. Uh, and you, you think, well, the tax man's taking this stuff, but think about what you get. Think about the roads and think about the infrastructure, the social infrastructure. There are lots of things that you know, society functions on taxes. And this is where the tech titans and, and lots of major corporations for that matter, really start to butt heads with the state because tax and antitrust, tax is and always will be the domain of the state. It's what makes states function. And that's a critical point. Um, and, and, you know, for the companies that turn around and say, you know, we love our consumers. So in the antitrust hearings that we heard last week, um, uh, these guys turn around and say, well, we love our customers and we believe in our country. And, you know, we, we take advantage of, of tax, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, reductions where we can. But do they really care about the societies they serve? It's, it's important to remember that Eduardo Saverin, who's one of the, the founders of Facebook, he ditched his American citizenship uh, because it was too complex for his own personal tax purposes, right? So it, it, this, this starts to beg a question. And again, Rick, going back to this example of the 19th century, when antitrust law was brought in to break up these huge monopolies that built America um, at the turn of the century, uh, th the people, the tech titans had nowhere to go, right? Carnegie couldn't just get up and, and start uh, you know, a steel empire somewhere else. 
Vanderbilt couldn't take his rail, railway network to another country and so on. But precisely Google and Amazon and Facebook, they can do that, right? They can up and they can move. It's called base erosion and profit shifting. And this has actually been a slow process for a long time. Thinking back to this tax avoidance example, they're setting up structures all over the world such that no state really has the ability to co-opt total control over these legal entities. And that's problematic. It's problematic for, for states in terms of sovereignty. Um, I think, I think th the last thing would be about the ethical question, right? So if that's the government side, um, what, what are the ethical considerations? And for me, there are two here. One is about user privacy and one is about surveillance. So user privacy. Um, back in the day, we, we realized at some point that there are these things called cookies that could track us across sites. And when that became a big deal, then, then uh, you know, websites were required to notify users that they're using cookies uh, mm -hmm. as pop-ups. Um, then GDPR came along and said, now you have to uh, get people to click the button that says, we accept these cookies. Um, and this is a little bit like Santa Claus, right? Parents don't believe in Santa Claus and the kids don't really believe in Santa Claus, but they believe in it for each other to make everybody feel happy and also to get the presents, right? And that's exactly the same dynamic at play with these, with these uh, websites that gather so much information. Um, no tech titan really believes that a user is gonna read that Google terms and conditions that pops up or when you download a new app. And likewise, uh, as a user, you think, well, I, I just trust that it's gonna be okay because they say they care about my privacy. Also, I really wanna play Candy Crush or whatever. Um, and so there's, the, there's this dynamic where we're not really taking responsibility for personal privacy. And increasingly, after you were talking about Alexa, right, people ask Google and they ask Alexa and they ask Siri things that they don't even ask their doctors. They ask questions they don't tell their spouses. Increasingly, these AIs know more about their users than the users know about themselves. And that's problematic. They use this for ad personalization, et cetera. And some of that can be good, but what does it cost you? Um, I think the person that brings this to life the best is Glenn Greenwald, uh, who's the reporter that broke the Edward Snowden revelations. Um, he, he says, anybody who says that I have nothing to hide, who cares, don't worry about privacy. He says, uh, he gives a challenge and he says, great, give me all of your passwords to all of your emails. And not just the emails that you use for like work and stuff, but like the emails that you created a long time ago that you only use for certain purposes. And for me, I think, you know, that's the core here. Um, imagine, imagine having next to your name for the whole world to see um, whether or not you have an account with Ashley Madison or Adult Friend Finder. Imagine having every Google search you've ever done next to your name, every Amazon purchase next to your name, every Tinder swipe, every tweet on your anonymous uh, Twitter account, um, every photo, video, or blog that you've ever visited, how long you stayed there, how often you've repeated your visits to them. And then you start to think about the level of insights that these organizations have about you. And I think the big realization is that this already exists. All mm -hmm. of those things mm -hmm. with items against your name already exist by a private company and you don't know what they're doing with it. And that, that brings us to the whole surveillance question. Um, Michel Foucault writes about uh, surveillance in his book, Discipline and Punish. And he says, we've really moved into um, a social infrastructure that is designed to control populations and to surveillance. And he gives the example of Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon. Panopticon was a structure that was designed for 
jails, prisons. It used to be the case that you had these huge estates for prisons and you needed all of these guards. And the intuition that Jeremy Bentham had was, well, you build a building that's round and right in the middle of it, you put a tower and that's the guard tower and all of the cells face that tower. So now from the perspective of the prisoner, you don't know if you're being watched, mm. right? And so accordingly, you modify your behavior. Mm. And so you don't cause trouble because the guards can see you. And we've, we've, we've seen this, this infrastructure um, in, in our society in a very real way. When you think about schools, the structure of classrooms, all the students are facing forward and the teacher can see all the students, but the students can't see all the students. And right. you look at the door of the classroom and there's a window where the principal or the headmaster can look through the door and observe the teacher. So these hierarchies of control, this is exactly what we're doing to ourselves with Google, with Facebook, with Amazon, with Apple. We have a device in our pocket that's a geolocation device that knows more about us, where we go, who we're with, what we think about, um, and how we engage with the world than, than ever before. And I think these are things we need to think really hard about. Um, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, um, actually, before I get there, Julian Assange in the book Cyberpunks in 2012, a year before the Snowden revelations, talks extensively about how the, the email providers are working with governments to, to analyze um, what's in your inboxes, to look at your phone records, um, to look at every aspect of your life. And everybody called him crazy because it's Julian Assange, right? Um, and then the Snowden revelations happened and we learned about prison and we found out that this is true. This really happened. Uh, again, Glenn Greenwald, who broke the Snowden revelations, says that, in a quote, the United States and its partners, unbeknownst to the entire world, has converted the internet, once heralded as an unprecedented tool of liberalization and democratization, into an unprecedented zone of mass indiscriminate surveillance. I don't think that we're thinking hard enough about these problems and that dynamic and how to get out of that dynamic. Mm -hmm. The real holy grail here, I think, when we think about the tech titans and this concept of the good, the bad, and the ugly would be to keep the good stuff, mm -hmm. but curtail the stuff that begins to infringe on democracy, right? And, and I'm really serious about this democracy point. Cambridge Analytica and driving election results is only possible because Facebook exists. Mm -hmm. Because people put all of their ideas, their politics, mm -hmm. their loves, their hates, their fears, their wants onto this single platform that can be cut by very, very clever data scientists who know what you're going to respond to in terms of an election ad. We think about tax and charitable foundations. These big companies don't pay tax, and yet Bill Gates has the, the Gates Foundation. Jeff Bezos and uh, his ex-wife have, have their foundation. Is it right that you have somebody who's worth $100 billion and $200 billion, respectively, who don't pay taxes, who are setting up charitable foundations, which incidentally allow them to have further tax write-offs, and, and put their money to things that they care about? You lose democracy. Mm -hmm. Taxation is about giving money to the government for the common good, not so that billionaires can co-opt the value chain to uh, engage in activities that they think are right. I think these questions in a very real way force us to ask questions about personal privacy, individual rights, and what is the structure of the society we want going forward? Do we want a democracy? I think that's a fundamental question. So Mateo, I got to jump in here with our last eight minutes. I think this is where the conversation needs to go. I'm intuiting is 
how do we empower ourselves? Like, what do we do about this as consumers, as citizens of the world, given all that you shared, the trains already left the station, we're already being surveilled, surveillance is going on, we're being tracked, we already know that at this point. You have the IRS, which is the most aggressive tax collector on the planet, impotent against Amazons of the world. They can't collect tax, right? They're not able to do it. So how do we shift this? Uh, what's, what are some ways where we can start to claim some of that power back? Sure. For me, I think this is really simple. I think voting makes, makes uh, a lot of sense. People think that uh, they shouldn't vote. You should absolutely vote. I think becoming politically engaged, making your voice heard is really important. And I think in terms of the tech titans, it's about individual behavior. We are presented all the time with these false choices. You know, accept the cookies or don't have access to Google. That's a false choice. Um, Slavoj Žižek, the philosopher, gives this great example uh, from Herman Melville's book, Bartleby. Uh, Bartleby is famous because he responds to his boss. Uh, his boss asks him to do something. And his response to everything is, I would prefer not to. And this is interesting because, again, thinking about the language, I would prefer not to is not the same as saying, I don't prefer to. You're, you're, in saying I prefer not to, you're affirming a predicate rather than negating um, uh, sorry, you're referring to a non-predicate rather than negating a predicate. Um, and the idea here is to, to, to say when you're presented with these choices about accept cookies or else, to say, I would prefer not to, but prefer not to make that choice. And there are tools we can employ to do that. VPNs are pretty ubiquitous now, true end-to-end -end encryption for communications. So forget WhatsApp, move to Signal because Signal has a true end-to-end -end encryption framework block tracking, use, use browsers that block tracking so that when you accept cookies, you know it's not gonna track you anyway. There are lots of things that we can do to uh, you know, co-opt our own privacy and our own data back. We do not have to be the products. We can say, I would like to have all the benefits, but I would prefer not to be uh, the, the product myself. I think those are the types of things that we need to be considering um, on, on a mass scale. Just one, one final point. We've got a couple of questions. If you think about forcing people to do things that they either don't want to do or feel uncomfortable doing, a good example would be this entire transformation towards digital. In six weeks, we've achieved what we wanted to. We would have ordinarily seen large companies uh, achieve in six years, right? It's, it's incredible with the digital transformation and the remote working and all of those good things. The fact that we're on the back of this system right now speaking virtually on video it's becoming commonplace it's a new habit so do you believe that you know you and i the the the, the layman out there the person who's listening to this thinking well yeah that's fine but i'm so dependent on amazon i'm so dependent on my alexa I really can't be bothered it was an interesting conversation but hey i'm not going to do anything different on monday morning do you think it's going to take a cyber war attack, a warfare attack? Do you think it's going to be, oh my God, I've just, I've just lost five grand from my personal current account. Oh, um, someone just hacked into my personal email and all of those, um, you know, naughty emails have been leaked or whatever it may be. It's going to take, it's going to take an event, isn't it? It's going to take some sort of a tsunami of, of pain for someone to say, actually, um, yes, I, I think it's time that I, I can, I, I need to exercise my choice the next time I see to follow terms and conditions or accept. I mean, I do it myself. We all do to a large extent. So we're now starting to accept and realize that we are all victims. We are addicted to the convenience 
and the the glamour of the amazing products that we use. And in fact, we, as a startup founder, I can tell you that for the last seven or eight years, this concept of minimum viable product or, you know, sprint thinking and, you know, incredible user experience has been borrowed from the tech titans. And the the, the underbelly or the, uh, the subtext of all of this is build massive businesses that are really successful and get loads of users on board and get loads of data on board. And I think you're making, you know, the statements you're making today as a founder, I'm stopping, I'm stopping for a moment and I'm trying to think whether ethically and morally I'm building the right business. You know, I'm in the AI business myself and so many of my friends and, and in my network, I think we also have a, a responsibility to um, not just copycat and, and get caught up in the data driven business model economy, but to stop and say, hang on a second, what are we doing? to drive change because the, the startups can drive change by the way more than even the consumers to a large extent because they're the ones who are the next generation of employers so you're making me think about that a lot by the way so thank you for sharing that wisdom uh, we have a few minutes a couple of questions have come through right rick yeah so let's jump to the one about globalization so philip plain asks um obviously there's benefits to the tech giants but what does this do for culture and diversity in the future uh, we're losing global culture at an alarming rate. Does globalization worsen this? And is this a price we're willing to pay? Yeah, Richard. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a fundamental question. There's, there's no question. So writers like uh, Jared Diamond and Wade Davis point to the loss of um, the ethnosphere, loss of language, loss of culture at an alarming rate. And there's no question that that's being driven by globalization. I don't know, I don't know that it's fair to say that the, the, the tech titans per se are more culpable than anybody else. I think that uh, in some ways you can make the argument that um, democratizing information gives us access to, um, uh, you know, preservation of cultures and languages that, that wasn't possible before. But, you know, to, 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 to think about that type of question, I think is, is really, really important. And, and to kind of marry that up to what you were just saying a minute ago, Af, I do think that these are the types of questions that we need to uh, really dig deep to, to understand in ourselves, what is the cost? What is the real cost of going down this road? And and have we thought hard enough about that? Um, because I don't I don't think we have. And the 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 ultimate result when you talk about a catastrophe uh, needing to, needing to, to happen, it, it's difficult to imagine what that would mean. What does it mean when uh, Google fails? What does it mean when you know Facebook fails? Um, th that's th those are big chunky questions, but I think precisely the right kinds of questions. What does it mean for culture? What does it mean for for the future of society? Yeah. Hmm. Unfortunately, I don't have an. If I had a really good answer, I probably would be a, a leading expert of something. <laughs> hey, I, you're right on Scott Galloway's heels. We can feel it. We're rooting for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't tell him. That's great. Um, we do have to get going, unfortunately. I know we can talk about this for easy another couple episodes, and maybe we'll, we'll want to have you back and do that, actually. Um, there's so much here, and, and this is such an important conversation. So thank you, Mateo, so much for what you bring to the table. Uh, your uh, expertise, your knowledge, your hunger for research and connecting the dots is so infectious and so helpful. So thank you for your ability to explain these things in a simple way, an approachable way, that are very complex topics, and uh, we know we want you back. Um, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Um, where should they go? Um, yeah, good question. So I'm, I'm uh, probably not surprisingly uh, really precious about my privacy. So uh, I don't do <laughs> social media and I don't have a website, but I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. So you can certainly look me up on LinkedIn and uh, 
um, uh, send me a DM and I'd be really happy to uh, um, have a have a chat. Excellent. And for everyone on the call as well, we're gonna we have a speakers page we just launched for all mm -hmm. of our past and present speakers. So you can go there and find out about our excellent guests, such as Mateo, who will be on there shortly, uh, and all of our past speakers as well. That's so another place to find out more information about these amazing talents that we attract here. Um, any final words, Mateo and Af, before we wrap up? Just to say thanks very much, and I, and I really appreciate it, uh, the opportunity, and uh, there, there is a lot more to, to go into. And I would say watch this space mm -hmm. and uh, think, about, think about it, right? You're, you're not, you're not going to get rid of Amazon and Google, but think about what it costs. Those would be my, my parting words, so thanks very much. Fabulous. N nothing to add. I think um, absolutely delighted to have you on the show, uh, Mateo, and some powerful words. A lot for us to think about, of course. So thank, thank you for being on the show. And we'll bring you back for sure, because there's a lot more to discuss. Yes. Um, and then lastly, for next week, same time, we're in, we have the pleasure of inviting uh, Mark Devine, one of the most decorated Navy SEAL commanders, CEO of Unbeatable Mind and SEAL Fit. And if anyone knows about what it takes to have the right mindset, to lead through chaos in times of uncertainty, it's Mark Devine. And so we're very delighted to have him next week as we get to explore all the things that we're all facing in our everyday life uh, and get to glean the lessons from him. So thank you all for tuning in. Very excited. And um, thank you for being part of the Straight Talk, Straight Talk.Live community. Um, until next time, keep tuning in. Keep sending your uh, requests and questions and comments. And have a wonderful, blessed day, everyone.